From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you this week? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, doing well. Thank you. How was your Valentine's Day? It was pretty uneventful for the most part. So mm-hmm. we don't really celebrate Valentine's Day. It's it, not to be those type of people who say, you know, it's just a made up holiday. It's nothing like that. It's just we it's uh, I, I don't know. We're that weird couple that we're just so happy to be together with each other every day of the week that it it feels weird celebrating like on special days besides our our wedding anniversary that's Mm -hmm. we we celebrate that but other than that everything is just we're just happy to be together Uh, doesn't matter if it's a special holiday every day is valentine's day exactly for you that's very nice the the thing for us because Karen and I will go out to dinner or we'll do something. Yeah. And then but the problem is Valentine's Day is on the first day of Lent. Yeah. <laughs> so, um that really limits what we can do. Because I... um if as as folks who are Roman Catholics know you have to fast and you have to abstain from meat. Not necessarily those two things just don't go with um Valentine's Day. So we're actually celebrating on February seventeenth. So, That's but, that's yeah. smart. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but I have you know I gave Carol flowers and a card and yeah and a couple little things. And no, that's so. uh, yeah. I didn't think about that this year. That's that's really bad timing. So yeah, because I, I went yeah. to school at a at a Catholic college. I'm not. I wasn't raised Catholic, but mm-hmm. I went to school uh, college at a Catholic college, and so like I I was always fired up on the day on Fridays during Lent and then Ash Wednesday, because, you know, me and my other friends who weren't Catholic, we'd be the only ones who were like in line for the, all the meat and hamburgers that they would serve (laughs) in the cafeteria and everyone else is waiting on fish. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's how it was at my university as well. (laughs) So, well, Craig, have you been enjoying the winter Olympic games in South Korea? I actually really have. So time-wise, it kind of worked out for me. My wife, unfortunately, uh, had surgery on uh, the Wednesday before the game started. And so, uh, you know, she was just discharged from the hospital right afterwards. Uh, but I for basically the entire first weekend, because she's been up at weird hours and needing help, and making sure she's on a strict schedule like uh since a lot of the live action happening from the games has been overnight i've actually i was lucky to catch a lot of it happening live while i was while i was up all night taking taking care of her so uh i've i haven't missed a single night yet except right now while we're recording this 
But <laughs> I mean, I, I have to be honest too. I I do have it scrolling on what's actually happening in some of the live events, so I can at least <laughs> read about it. Then I'll go back and watch it later. <laughs> yeah, Carol and I have watched a lot of it. What's nice is that because of the time difference, um, when it starts going live, I think it's like ten or eleven in the morning in Korea. It is five in the afternoon here. Yeah. So we. C- it's so nice to watch so many of the events live yeah. um, because they show a variety of countries because then when you when we see the repackaged you know stuff during prime time you know they um, it, it, the focus of course is on the United States because it's United you know it's it's for the US network but um, the the commercials are in at the most inopportune times and yeah and I'm really tired of some of them uh, that's... and um, so it's great that this time difference works out really well. Yeah, no, I West Coast uh, people. It, it's definitely great for you. For us, it's still not that bad, you know. Having the eight o'clock, so when our prime time starts, it's essentially the same thing as you. Our, our prime time, it's a lot of live stuff happening. But uh, the nice part is, at least on like the Apple TV, uh, the NBC Sports app lets you choose all of the live events that are currently happening uh, without all of the commercial uh, mm-hmm. delays and you don't have to hear the commentate or like the cutbacks to the studios because it's not the the primetime event you can just watch the event from start to finish as a whole and mm-hmm. that's that's what I've been trying to do do most of but I, I'm bouncing all around so I've been watching yeah. a lot of the snowboarding a lot of the, oh that's been amazing the, yeah no uh, that that is a sport for young people <laughs> it, it absolutely oh is and you know as of when we were recording this uh, uh, Sean White just won for won the gold for men's half pipe so I think now after it's all said and done uh, the four snowboarding events uh, every gold medal was won by by an American, which is which is really awesome. But uh, it, now I, I enjoy it all. Like I love watching curling, like everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's just such a fascinating sport, and it is the, the, the doing watching slalom and moguls for skiing, ice dancing. It, it's just mm-hmm. I, I love the Winter Olympics. It's so entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. And you know, um. Folks may be surprised to know that there is a connection to Walt Disney and the uh, Winter Olympic Games. Um, Many of the Olympic game traditions uh, we enjoy originated with Walt Disney and the 1960 Winter Olympic Games in Squaw Valley, California. So Craig and I thought you would enjoy my episode from the archives of the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland, um, which is called... um, uh, it's a, it's about the Olympics and about Walt Disney and the 1960 Winter Olympics. So let the games begin. And with the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia underway, this is a good time to take a look back at the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California, and the role that Walt Disney had in making those games so successful and the lasting impact of Walt Disney on the Olympics. During my research, I drew... A lot of this information from the Walt Disney Family Museum, Um, Jim Corcus, who's a Disney historian, and the Friends of Walt Disney Facebook page um, that's headed up by Disney historian Leo Holzer. Um, The tale of the 1960 Winter Olympics, which was held in Squaw Valley, California, seems like a fairy tale. 
It was initiated as a publicity stunt by Alexander Cushing, the Harvard-educated owner and only resident of the struggling ski resort. The Squaw Valley bid shocked the world by beating out some of the great ski resorts of Europe in, in International Olympic Committee voting in 1955. Now, Cushing campaigned vigorously, stressing to the International Olympic Committee delegates that the Olympic Games belong to the world and shouldn't automatically be rewarded to a European resort. He had his bid written in French, English, and Spanish and commissioned a 3,000-pound model of Squaw Valley to show the delegates. The bid interested the IOC. Squaw Valley certainly had splendid qualities, most obviously the 450 inches of annual snowfall and areas of mountain terrain so difficult that they had not yet been successfully skied by anyone. Ultimately, Cushing's intense personal lobbying helped persuade the IOC to choose Squaw Valley by a vote of 32 to 30, beating out Innsbruck, Austria. But officials decided that it would be a conflict of interest for Cushing, the Squaw Valley resort owner, to be the promoter of the games, so he was barred from direct involvement. There was only one problem. Squaw Valley was hardly prepared to host an international sporting event. That sounds a little familiar. It does. (laughs) Ouch. At the time, it boasted only one chairlift, two tow ropes, and a 50-room lodge. Upon hearing about the California bid, IOC President Avery Brundage told Cushing, the USOC has obviously taken leave of their senses. Hmm. Cushing turned the resort size into an advantage, presenting it as a blank slate upon which a world-class facility could be custom-built to suit Olympic needs. Now the newly formed California Olympic Commission had five short years to build a fully functional Olympic-ready facility in the mountains near Lake Tahoe. So undeveloped was the location that at the close of the 1956 Winter Games, Squaw Valley had no local government to accept the Olympic flag from the mayor of the previous host. An IOC member from California had to accept the flag on Squaw Valley's behalf. Bringing the Winter Games to California meant enlisting the assistance of Hollywood. In 1958, Organizing Committee President Prentice Hale first approached Walt Disney, asking for his help. Prentice Hale was a very big personality in San Francisco. He was chairman of Carter, Holly Hale, and the Broadway department stores, Ron Miller said. Prentice Hale visited the Disney studio in Burbank and after joining Walt for lunch, asked him to become chairman of the pageantry committee for the upcoming games. This would involve programming, the opening and closing ceremonies, the victory ceremonies for each event, and the Olympic torch relay. Disney agreed, saying later, I didn't know then what I was getting into. Now, Walt was no stranger to the skiing world. Mount Disney in the Sierras was named in his honor after he helped finance the Sugar Bowl Ski Resort in 1939. Walt had become interested in skiing when he made the live-action feature Third Man on the Mountain in Switzerland in 1958 and had inspired the addition of the Matterhorn attraction to Disneyland in 1959. So in 1960, Walt's interest in creating a ski resort attraction resulted in him commissioning Economics Research Associates to survey the ski resort potentials at San 
Gorgonio Mountain in the San Bernardino Range and also at Mineral King Valley near Sequoia National Park. Being very thorough, he later ordered surveys of Aspen, Colorado and Mammoth Mountain in California. And at the Olympic Games, Walt met Bavarian ski expert Willie Schaeffler, who was later hired by Walt to help scout a location for the Disney Ski Resort, and Schaeffler confirmed Walt's choice of Mineral King. And we'll have a link in our show notes to my um, blog and segment on Walt Disney and the Mineral King project. For Squaw Valley, Walt Disney recruited from within his own organization to build a committee that would undertake the Olympic pageantry. Ron Miller, assistant director at the studio and Walt's son-in-law, was named pageantry coordinator. Another assistant director, Joseph McEvity, was named Olympic Torch Relay director, and manager Edsel Curry became director of special projects. Walt Disney Productions vice president Card Walker was named director of publicity. Walt also called upon a few friends. Art Linkletter, television star and host of Disneyland's live opening special, became the vice president in charge of entertainment. And Western Airlines president Terrell Drinkwater was named vice chairman in charge of budget. Filling the role of pageantry director was Tommy Walker. He was once a band leader at the University of Southern California and then director of customer relations at Disneyland. Walker's role was to gain support for the event, and he conferred in Salt Lake City with the president of the Mu Music Educators National Conference about recruiting young musicians for the festivities and sought the help of Japan's largest fireworks manufacturer in developing the ceremony's pyrotechnics. Supervising the musical portion of the production were choral director Dr. Charles Hurt from the University of Southern California and band director Clarence Sawhill. And after meeting with the Music Educators National Conference in 1959, the committee was granted permission to work with the California and Nevada Music Educators Association to recruit musicians and singers from public high schools in those states. The response was overwhelming. When applications were distributed in the fall of 1959, more than 30 bands and 70 choral groups applied to be part of the Olympic ceremonies. After listening to hours of mailed-in auditions, Hurt and his committee selected 18 bands and 37 choruses from the two states. A musical program was chosen for the event, and in December 1959, Hurt and Sawhill gathered at UCLA to record a demo of the choral and instrumental numbers to distribute to participating schools. Groups practiced first individually and then in one of four regional rehearsals held in Reno, San Francisco, Fresno, and Los Angeles. Then the selected students had to raise money back home to fund their trip to Squaw Valley. 3,680 students, 1,322 band members, and 2,358 choir members participated. Youth participation was critical to the success of the Games. Acting as official flag raisers, messengers, and crowd control during the event were 125 Explorer Scouts under the leadership of Scoutmaster William King. Walt was quoted as saying, I have always said that the spirit of American youth cannot be daunted, and I think this was dramatically proven by their unselfish and wholehearted effort before and during the 8th Olympic Winter Games. 
And this effort extended to the all-important torch relay, which brought the Olympic flame by foot more than 600 miles from the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum that was site of the 1932 Olympic Summer Games to Squaw Valley. More than 700 high school runners from the California Interscholastic Federation took place, joined by a number of former Olympic champions. The athletes were each assigned one-mile sections of the route where they practiced by running with eight-pound shot puts. Now, meanwhile, the effort to build an Olympics-worthy resort out of the wilderness was underway. It is estimated that 2,000 visitors a day arrived in the summer of 1959 to tour the construction site, and Walt made several visits to coordinate the entertainment efforts. The Disney Company leased a home in Squaw Valley to house the people working on the Olympics, as well as the celebrity guests. Walt leased an adjoining home for his family, and Ron Miller worked on the project on and off for about six months and lived in Squaw Valley with his wife Diane and their three small children at the time, Chris, Joanna, and Tammy, for two months in January and February. Walt and Lily came and went, and Diane's sister and brother-in-law, Sharon and Bob Brown, also visited. Now, these Olympics were after Walt's own heart. They were full of innovations and firsts. Now, previous Olympics had lodged guests and athletes in local hotels and homes, which really surprised me when I found that out. But the remote location of Squaw Valley required the construction of custom-built housing for participants, making it the very first Olympic village, consisting of four dormitories. Artificial use of ice was used for the first time in Olympic history for the skating events. Waste heat from the refrigeration plant was used to heat buildings, melt snow from roofs, and provide hot water. Other innovations included new timekeeping equipment capable of measuring time to the hundredth of a second. IBM supplied 15 technicians and two RAMIC computers to tabulate results and output data in English and French. For the first time, television rights were sold for the games, with CBS buying exclusive rights for $50,000. The network eventually broadcast 31 hours of coverage during the games, and when officials needed to consult tape of an event to determine whether a skier had missed a slalom gate, it inspired the concept of instant replay. Nice. Mm. Yeah, so there was a lot of firsts in, the, in this that, that we still use today. And the Disney team did everything it could to make the games memorable for athletes, spectators, and TV audiences. Now, the look of the games was heavily influenced by Disney artist, designer, and Imagineer John Hench, who was named Decor Decorator. At Walt's suggestion, inspired by the ancient Greek custom of commemorating Olympic champions with marble sculptures, Hench designed 30 16-foot snow-looking statues for placement along the Avenue of Athletes and in other significant locations throughout Squaw Valley. To learn about snow sculpting techniques, Hench visited the Dartmouth College Winter Carnival and Ice Festival in February of 1959, as well as a similar event in Quebec. He then designed the statues, which were then created by Floats Incorporated of Pasadena. 
Nine of the statues were female, four skiers, three figure skaters, and two speed skaters. Amongst the 21 male statues were nine skiers, seven hockey players, three speed skaters, and two figure skaters. Two larger 24-foot statues, one male and one female, were created to flank the Tower of Nations. The tower, another hinge design, stood 79 feet tall and 20 feet wide. Suspended upon the metal grid which composed the tower's frames were the Olympic rings as well as 30 aluminum crests, each 5 by 6, denoting the participating nations. The tower marked the staging area where the closing and opening ceremonies were held, as well as the medal ceremonies for each competition. This was another innovation, innovation for the Games, as victory ceremonies had not always previously been held for public viewing. Now, around the area occupied by the Tower of Nations were 30 aluminum flagpoles, one for the 30 participating nations. The effort to build the Squaw Valley facilities was an expensive one, so sponsorships took on an importance previously unknown in Olympic history. To help offset the tens of millions of dollars in construction costs, corporations, cities, and individuals were approached to sponsor individual flagpoles and snow sculptures. Sponsors' names were engraved on the items, and they were allowed to claim them after the games had ended. For $2,000, one could purchase one of the snow statues. Palm Springs, Pasadena, Burbank, and Inglewood were among the cities that agreed to do so. Today, some of the flagpoles can be found in locations, and I bet you all know where one is. At the Walt Disney Studios Commissary in Burbank. Oh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sitting right outside there. Um, and the Walt Disney Elementary School in Marceline, Missouri, and at the first tee of the La Quinta Country Club in La Quinta, California. You can see the plaque at the studio, but you have to walk on the grass in order hmm. to read it, So, which I did when I was there. Um, Disney also helped funded a symphonic carillion, which rang out three times a day and could be heard throughout the valley. Installed by a Los Angeles electronic engineer, the 161-bell carillion and 61-note vibracord harp used 24 speakers and was provided to the Olympic Committee without cost. Now, at one point, Olympic officials complained about the costs for some of Disney's elaborate plans, but he silenced those complaints when he declared, either we're going to do it right or Disney will pull out. Wow. And that sounds like him, too, Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> um, one last hench contribution to the Olympic legacy was the torch. While torches had been used in previous games, Hench completely redesigned the version used in 1960 to make it easier to carry and stay lit. Subsequent, subsequent games have adapted their torches to local cultural traditions, but their overall forms can be traced back to Hench's design. The 1960 torch is on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum at the Presidio of San Francisco, along with a pennant, poster, and 1960 Olympic pins. So see, pin trading goes all the way back to the 1960 Olympics. Yet all did not go smoothly in the run-up to the Games. Walt had originally announced plans for the torch to be flown from Olympia, Greece by jet airliner to Los Angeles, but the Greek Olympic Committee did not receive a request to ignite the flame at Olympia until January 1960 and refused to do so for logistical reasons. 
A last-minute shuffle in the plans meant a return to the ritual followed during the 1952 Winter Games in Oslo, where the torch was ignited at the chalet of Norwegian skiing pioneer Sondre Nordheim. Also uncooperative were officials in Melbourne, Australia, site of a recent Olympics to whom Disney technicians wrote for a formula that could fuel the torch throughout the games. The Australians refused to divulge their secrets. (laughs) (laughs) So Disney staffers had to concoct their own fuel mixture. Even the bird community caused trouble. Squaw Valley was the first Winter Olympics to feature a release of doves at the opening ceremony, but it was worried that doves would linger in the valley and freeze to death. So homing pigeons were recruited to play the role of doves of peace, (laughs) since they would know to leave the valley and return home after they were released. This troubled the fellow in charge of the ice rink, though, who was wary of releasing thousands of nervous birds over his pristine ice. So the schedule of events was shuffled so that the ceremonial cannons would fire only after the pigeons had been released and were heading for home. I guess they didn't want to scare the um, poop out of the pigeons with those cannons. Um, Only more... so much a Zamboni can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> um, more complications came when it was decided to use the original Olympic anthem that had been written for the first modern games in Athens in 1896. The Disney musical department attempted to obtain a score from Olympic headquarters in Switzerland to no avail. I'm always amazed. It's amazing to hear how, how uncooperative yeah. all these countries were, because all you hear about now is the Olympic spirit and of cooperation. Eventually, Disney was able to track down a copy in Japan, but it was in Japanese, and they had to decipher it as best they could. Hench's giant snow statues encountered trouble on the way from Pasadena. A tarp on one of the diesel trucks transporting them came loose, and its exhaust covered the white statues with soot. So Bob Henry, executive vice president of Floats Incorporated, who had been tasked to build and deliver the statues, was forced to find a way to wash them as quickly as possible. After delivery, a hundred mile an hour winds at the Olympic site blew one of the statues over. The press reported that Henry soon left for New York so as to get as far away from the statues as possible. So while Disney's Olympic role began as the show producer, it quickly grew beyond the scope of providing entertainment. The problem was that Hale was a retailer, Ron Miller said. He was the president of a retail company, and he brought in two people who were also retailers. So as we were getting closer and closer to the Olympics, it became very obvious that they didn't know anything about operations. They didn't know anything about parking. They didn't know anything about credentials. So they kept leaning on Walt to take over the various segments of the operation. Walt called on a few more key people from Disneyland and the Disney organization to help in those areas. Men like Bob Matheson, Bob Allen, Dick Nunes... Tommy Walker, Miller's friend, Bach McEvity, and others took more and more um, roles in the um, operation of the Olympics. We gradually took over the whole operation of the place, Miller said. Finally, opening day for the Games drew near. California's Racing Pigeon Organization visited to make trial runs with their Doves of Peace. The day before the ceremony, the combined bands had their first group rehearsal. Four army cannons firing four-inch shells were brought in and aimed at surrounding mountains to prevent avalanches. 
Yet, it was a torrential rain the week before that threatened to wipe out the packed snow parking lots that had been so carefully created for visitors. The Olympic torch, which had departed Morgadal, Norway, the cradle of winter sports, on January 31st, was carried above the North Pole by an SAS DC-7 to Los Angeles. Passed at Los Angeles International Airport, airport to Olympic shot put champion Perry O'Brien, it was taken via helicopter to Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, where it began its journey to Squaw Valley by foot in the pouring rain. Over a period of 19 days, it traversed a route scouted personally by McEvity, past small towns that greeted it with celebrations and festivities along the way. On February 18, 1960, Walt Disney and his staff awoke and were greeted by a blizzard. With the ceremony and coast-to-coast television coverage scheduled to begin at 10 a.m., the whiteout conditions presented several problems. Snow on the roads prevented people from making the perilous drive to Squaw Valley and hindered the network crews and announcers from reaching their locations. Ten inches of snow fell that morning. CBS host Walter Cronkite appeared to have been broadcasting from the Arctic wastes. (laughs) Many of the high school musicians hadn't dressed properly for the conditions and stood freezing to their instruments during dress rehearsal. Their tongues were freezing to their horns, and they could not see the conductor through the snow. The pigeon wranglers insisted that they couldn't release their birds in such weather, and Vice President Richard Nixon, assigned to proclaim the opening of the games, was forced to drive in from Reno as his helicopter couldn't operate under the conditions. No one knew if the vice president would make it on time. Someone had to decide what to do. Now, the alternative to an outdoor ceremony was a much smaller indoor ceremony, which the TV crews favored. But Dr. Charles Hurt, the choral director, objected to having to leave out so many of the young musicians who had worked so hard to be part of the festivities. Art Linklater later later reported that Walt remained unfazed throughout. Disney merely said that they would go on and it would hopefully clear up. Walt even enlisted Linkletter into service as a television host, despite the fact that he was not meant to be there as a broadcaster. But although the ceremony was postponed 15 minutes to allow more spectators to arrive on the snowbound roads, where bumper-to-bumper traffic extended for 12 miles outside of town, they couldn't stall forever. Finally, with everyone gathered and ready to go, the skies cleared. To everyone's astonishment, the snow ended, sunshine broke through, and the opening ceremonies of the 8th Winter Olympics commenced. The festivities began with a sustained drum roll and the raising of the 30 national flags as the United States Marine Band played the Parade of the Olympians. The 740 athletes then entered the arena with each national delegation heralded by a salvo of fireworks. This was advertised as the first ever use of daytime fireworks, a Disney event that continues in the theme parks today. After the athletes were seated, Prentice Hale, president of the Olympic Organizing Committee, delivered a welcome. Squaw Valley marked the first Olympics of the space race era, and Hale's speech acknowledged that nationalist tensions that had marked the preparation for the Games. 
you can return home as the world's best equipped ambassadors of unity and peace. Before we pay so much attention to conquering outer space, we should devote ourselves to conquering inner space, the distance between nations. Avery Brundage, president of the IOC, then introduced Vice President Nixon, who declared the games open. Nixon had driven 46 miles through the snow from Reno to deliver a 15-word address. <laughs> the masked band and chorus joined the Marine Band in playing the newly orchestrated Olympic hymn, the first time the 1896 piece had been presented at a Winter Olympics. The 2,000 pigeons were released, and once they were clear, there was an eight-round cannon salute, one salvo for each of the previous Winter Olympic Games. A newly composed piece, These Things Shall Be, was then performed by the massed bands and chorus. Once planned for delivery by helicopter, the Olympic torch made the last 30 miles of its route via cross-country skier. It arrived on site with Olympic champion Andrea Mead Champion, who appeared with the flame atop the peak of Little Papoose and blazed down the slopes accompanied by an honor guard of eight skiers to deliver the torch to Olympic speed skater Kenneth Henry. As the masked bands played the peace conquest, Henry lit the ceremonial torch officially beginning the games. Chimes rang throughout the hills as the Marine Band performed God of Our Fathers. Participants joined in the Olympic prayer, which was narrated by actor Carl Malden. This was a somewhat controversial decision at the time, as such an event had not always been included in previous Olympics. There might have been a bit of Cold War showmanship at play here. And Tommy Walker was quoted as saying that the prayer was optional, but Walt felt that prayer represents one of the freedoms of America and that we should definitely have it. After the prayer, American figure skater Carol Heiss recited the Olympic Oath on behalf of all the athletes, the first female Olympian to ever do so and the assembled bands performed a new orchestration of the Star-Spangled Banner. The ceremony ended appropriately with a bang as the athletes paraded out. 30,000 balloons were released and shells were fired that exploded with bursts of flags from each nation, which drifted back to Earth via parachutes. Five minutes after the end of the ceremony, the snow began to fall once more. <laughs> so that was Disney weather. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> So whilst the 6,500 spectators fell short of projections due to the weather and traffic, the snow delivered, the show delivered as promised. Mm. But even with all the rave reviews for the miracle of Squaw Valley, as it was being called, Walt still had more surprises planned. The Squaw Valley Olympics were the first to be scheduled with live entertainment with the athletes in mind. And when Walt first announced his plans, he proclaimed that nothing is more important than creating lasting goodwill amongst our visitors, and we shall do everything we can to make their stay a happy one. Again, he delivered. Entertainment Vice President Art Linkletter brought in a slew of his Hollywood friends every evening, resulting in appearances by Bing Crosby, Roy Rogers, Red Skelton, and Jack Benny. Actress Marlena Dietrich posed for pictures with the German hockey team. I'm sure they enjoyed that. <laughs> and the media was well tended to thanks to official press hostess Jane Mansfield. 
The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences delivered films for the athletes, which were presented along with free refreshments nightly in the enclosed Olympia Theater. A standout favorite was actor Danny Kaye, who managed to lead a number of international delegations in a chorus of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Hmm. Press reports from the time describe Kay performing rollicking musical numbers in a dozen languages, working Korean, Japanese, and Russian participants into his act. Decades later, many of those in attendance remembered having been in tears over Kay's antics. One memorable evening, Walt brought up the entire Golden Horseshoe Review from Disneyland to present to the Olympians. Wally Bogue, Betty Taylor, Gene Sheldon, Henry Calvin, Don Novus, and three stuntmen all performed for the Olympians. And the stage saloon brawl at the end of the evening was so raucous that the media reported a frightened security officer had rushed to the phone to request help. Ron Miller said, you know, I think the athletes really enjoyed every evening we had because we had such a diversification of talent. Walt had one last idea for entertaining the participants, who due to their own busy busy schedules rarely got to see the medal ceremonies as they took place. So every evening while emceeing that night's entertainment lineup, Art Linkletter would introduce the new champions who had won medals that day. They would then have a drawing and the winner getting a free phone call home, which was a rather remarkable prize back in those days. So one evening, the winner was said to be so excited that he could barely speak, and it was only when they got through to his hometown operator that he remembered his family didn't own a telephone. (laughs) So a former athlete who had a short professional football career, Ron Miller, said it was very rewarding to contribute to such a great event. I marveled at the athleticism of all the skiers, and Diane and I watched the Russian USA-Russian hockey game, which is just one of the most stimulating things I've ever seen. People standing up, shouting, screaming, and we won. You know, it was the spirit of the whole thing. Team USA would go on to become the first miracle hockey team, winning the gold medal after playing Czechoslovakia in the finals. Mm. The victory reportedly received a little assistance when the Soviet coach visited Team USA's locker room before the third period of the deciding game and had the Americans breathe from a tank of oxygen before returning to the ice. The 1960 games included 15 alpine and ski jumping events, eight speed skiing events, and three figure skating events. It was the first year for women's speed skating and the men's biathlon. After 10 days, 665 athletes from 30 nations had competed in 27 events, and it was time to return home. On February 28th, 20,000 spectators filled the stands of Blythe Memorial Arena to witness the closing ceremonies. Flag bearers surrounded the rostrum as the national anthems of Greece, the United States, and Austria were played. IOC President Avery Brundage declared the games closed and the Olympic torch was extinguished. Thousands of balloons were released to end the ceremony. Walt Disney's Olympics, the largest winter games held to that point, received rave reviews. The once skeptical IOC chair would go on to say they were the greatest games ever staged. (laughs) Army Archard in Variety called Disney's opening ceremony the greatest show on earth. 
and a reporter for the Los Angeles Times proclaimed that it is my conviction that you'll never see anything of that kind so well done in your lifetime. Los Angeles Times reporter Braven Dyer wrote, The opening ceremony was the most remarkable thing I ever saw. No matter how much credit you give Walt Disney and his organization, it isn't nearly enough. Even the Russians were impressed. One of the heads of their delegation approached an Olympic security chief and asked what chemicals had been used to control the weather during the opening ceremony. Hmm. When we left, Ron Miller said, we were told and we heard that it was the greatest Olympics up until that time. Of course, there have been a lot greater ones since, but what we accomplished was pretty fantastic. After the Olympics, the Tahoe area boomed and more Americans took up skiing and other winter sports. I don't know that there was one particular highlight, Miller said, of his 1960 Olympic experience. I will say, and I still feel it, after working really hard for 12, 13, 14, 15 days, just going solid. After closing ceremonies, of course, everybody went to the bar and we all celebrated. We went home, went to bed, and I woke up the next morning and walked into the area, and there wasn't anybody there. I couldn't believe it. From witnessing 12 or 13 days of just wonderful spectators and great athletes, it was such an exciting period of time, the life that existed there. Then all of a sudden, I wake up that one morning, and it was like a ghost town. It was really quite depressing. But he closed with a funny anecdote, recalling a return visit to Squaw Valley with Diane more than a dozen years ago, and finding evidence of something Disney had introduced to Squaw Valley that was still there. Pigeons. We released (laughs) all these peace pigeons, and some of them never left, Miller said. (laughs) The 1960 Winter Olympics would influence the look and feel of the Games up to the current Olympics. Disney's efforts set new pageantry standards for all future Olympics. Many of Disney's team would contribute to future Olympics, most notably the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. The events of Squaw Valley would also affect Walt. It marked the first time he had met the world outside of Disneyland and began the outreach efforts he would continue in 1964 at the New York World's Fair. It also sparked a concerted effort to build his own winter sports resort at Mineral King, a project he would pursue for the rest of his life. But at the time, many simply wondered how Walt had managed to make things work out so perfectly. Was it divine intervention? In Disney's own press materials, they claimed that if it was a miracle, it was a well-planned miracle. But perhaps Walt said it best, according to Art Linkletter, after the improbably perfect opening ceremony. Walt explained, It's just that if you live right, things happen the way they're supposed to. It's remarkable how much Walt Disney's innovations continue to shape today's Olympics. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's, I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of what we've been enjoying in these Olympics all started, uh, you know, with Walt when he was, uh, you know, the chairman of, you know, the of the show. Yeah, know, of it. No, I and I've been just I've been going back kind of with these games and really looking into like some of the past ones especially the early ones uh you know going because the winter olympics were they started like in the um 
started in the 20s, but then World War II happened, and I think it got, like, thrown off for 12 years at one point, and then it really picked up steam again in, like, 1948. And so, like, I've been trying to go back and, and learn about that, but I just wish there was there was better documentation of so we could see all of the progression and then you know from from the innovations that we just heard about with Walt Disney and now now beyond so it's it's you know i'm sure there's stuff out there if i would watch the olympic channel and watch the the old olympic films but I don't have time. I'm working all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I just watched uh, on the Olympic Channel on YouTube. I just watched something on how, um, like the the axle and the sow cow in in um, you know in the figure skating, how they got its name, how they got their name, oh, wow. and all that. Yeah, um, so it was really interesting because they're named after people that originated the jumps and all that. So okay, well, yeah, I'm just so. gonna have to give up sleep for a couple nights <laughs> yeah. again and start yeah. going through the archives. Mm-hmm. Well, um, now the 1960 Winter Olympics uh, transformed Squaw Valley from a ski resort with a one chair lift to rope toes and a 50 room lodge into a large world destination ski resort. Uh, the Olympic Village sign and the Athletic Center, which is now known as Olympic House, still remain at Squaw Valley as a reminder of Walt's Olympics. <laughs> Well, it's that time again for our This Week in Disney History quiz. And we have Jackie Gailey from The Diz back to challenge Craig on important events of the Walt Disney Studio and the Disney theme parks for the week of February 11th. Jackie, welcome back. Thank you so much, Michael. It's it's wonderful to have you back, and we have you've been with us now. This is our third week, and you're you're tied each week. You and Craig are tied, so this is it. Uh, we're we're going to see we're going to see who comes out on top. But you're both you know pretty equal here. So so for our friends at home, the rules are so that you can play along. First of all, no googling and or binging or whatever and um, you get three points if after hearing the question you do not want to hear the multiple choice answers two points if i give you the multiple choice answers or one point if um, you ask to have an incorrect answer taken away or if your opponent gets the answer wrong and you can answer it correctly you get a point okay so, Jackie, since you're our guest, would you like to go first or would you like Craig to go first? We'll let Craig go first this time. Okay. Craig, are you all set? I am ready. Excellent. All right. So this is February 11th. On February 11th, 1963, the Beatles record Do You Want to Know a Secret, which is based on a song from this Disney animated film. I'm going to go with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay, well, what made you decide on that one? Um, isn't that the beginning of the lyrics to Someday My Prince Will Come? Yeah, yeah, it's at the it's the Wishing Well song. Yeah, do you, you want to know a secret? Right. Do you promise not to tell? We're standing by, by a wishing, wishing well. wells. Yeah. That's it. 
You sound just like her. It's uncanny. You know, once I'm getting over the flu, it's that's when my pipes are the best. <laughs> You're right. This is a Lennon McCartney song. Do you want to know a secret? For singing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is for their upcoming um Please Please Me um record album. It this song was um mostly written by John Lennon and it's sung by George Harrison. And what Lennon said about this song was my mother was always well she was a comedian and singer not professional but you know she used to get up in pubs and things like that she had a good voice she could do k star she who was popular at the time she used to do this little tune when i was just one or two year old yeah she was still living with me then the tune was from this disney movie want to know a secret promise not to tell you are standing by a wishing well so i had this sort of thing in my head and i wrote it and just gave it to george to sing so excellent so we're off to a good start here so jackie are you all set for your question i am this is for february 12th the toy industry association inducted this disney personality into the toy industry hall of fame on february 12th 2016 Ooh, think about that for a minute Vaguely thinking about a news story, I I think I know who it is. Can you do? Let's do multiple choice. Is it? Yeah, I have a feeling you probably wrote about this on I the, think the I news. Think, but okay. I can't remember is if it, it's one or two of them. Okay. okay, is it A. Mickey Mouse, B. Bob Iger, C. Woody and Buzz Lightyear, or D. George Lucas? Okay, it was Bob Iger. You're absolutely right. It was Bob Iger, the chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, But there are 70 other people also at the time who are also included, and it did include Jim Henson and George Lucas. So anyway, excellent. So two points. So Craig has three. Jackie has two. Craig, it's back to you for February 13th. Disneyland's ambassador, Melissa Taylor, and this Disney personality began a 30-day flight around the world to celebrate Disneyland's 30th anniversary on February 13th, 1985. Oh, lordy, lordy. I have a guess, but I just want to see if it's in multiple choice. Okay. Was it A, Snow White, B, Marty Sklar, C, Sleeping Beauty, or D, Mickey Mouse? I was going to go with Mickey Mouse before, so since he popped up there, I'll say Mickey. You are correct. It was Mickey Mouse. Excellent. Okay, so it's five to two, and Jackie... Here's your question. Oh, this is the Valentine's Day question. This Disney attraction officially opened on February 14th, 2009. Oh. Valentine's Day one. Hmm. I better do multiple choice because I definitely have no idea. Okay. 
Okay. Is it A, Monsters, Inc. Ride and Go Seek at Tokyo Disneyland? B, the American Idol Experience at Disney's Hollywood Studio? C, the updated Disney's Electrical Parade at Disneyland's um, California? Um, or D, Mickey's Fun Wheel at Disney California Adventure? Hmm. 2009 I we were getting ready to we were planning our girls we were let's see we were planning our second trip to Walt Disney World about that time trying to I definitely don't know if it was Tokyo I want to say I remember reading a lot about American Idol when we were planning that second trip, though. I'm going to guess that it was American Idol because I, for some reason, I remember a lot of American Idol. And I used to watch that show very religiously back in the day. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to guess I'm going to guess that American Idol. Mm -hmm. You are correct. Disney's Hollywood Studios celebrated the grand opening of its newest attraction, the American Idol Experience. I am excellent. a lucky <laughs> So <laughs> Excellent. So you have four points. So it's Jackie four and Craig five. Okay. I wonder if they'll bring back that American Idol experience now that it's coming back to ABC. I, you know, TV I show. that's going to be really interesting because they've been making a big deal about different things going on with American Idol because of that. And I can't help but wonder that, too. Honestly. I would say no because they can't sell it. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if Frozen is still in that theater over mm-hmm. American Idol, they can still sell plenty of Frozen stuff. That's true. Well, yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't sell little Ryan Seacrest dolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might not make the best Barbie, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, Craig, for you. February 15th. On February 15th, 2006, dedication ceremonies are held for this addition to the Disneyland Railroad. Okay. You didn't say the year, did you? Yes. um, 2006. February 15th. Okay. Uh, I'll do multiple choice. Okay, is it A, a reimagined Grand Canyon and Primeval World diorama? B, the reimagined Fantasyland Railroad Station, now renamed the Toontown Station? C, the Ward Kimball Steam Engine and the Lily Bell VIP Parlor Car? Or D, Walt Disney Steam Engine and a Lily Bell VIP Parlor Car? I'm gonna. Uh, this is a tough one for me. I'm just. I'm gonna throw out C. I'll go with that. Ward Kimball and Lily Bell. You are correct. This was an exclusive hey. ceremony at Disneyland. Um, so the cast members came together to show their love for one of the park's original attractions, the Disneyland Railroad, and they dedicated two additions to the railway, the new Ward Kimball steam engine and the the return of the Lily Bell VIP 
um, parlor car. And um, the early morning event at the Frontierland train station was hosted by Disneyland Resort President Matt Wiemet, and it honored the namesake of the engine, which, of course, was one of Walt's nine old men, Disney animator Ward Kimball. And the parlor car, which had been fully restored, um, was um, named after Walt Disney's widow, Lillian Disney. So very good. Okay, so... Craig gets two points. That brings him up to seven. And now we go back to Jackie. Okay, Jack. Well, Jackie, you you may know this because you had, well, you know, maybe you, your children enjoyed the Disney Channel. This popular Disney Channel series aired its last episode on February 16th, 2014. 2014. Okay, mm-hmm. let me think about this. That is definitely right in the, I do know this one. I actually, you know, it's really funny because when I think of certain years now, I think of how old were the kids and what were we doing? Mm -hmm. And I do know this one because, because Good Luck Charlie was a show that we watched religiously the whole series and it was so. It was. It was. Good luck, Charlie. You are right. This oh, was the series us. finale of Good Luck, yeah. Charlie, and it yeah. was called Goodbye, Charlie. That's yeah. <laughs> we were so sad that that went away. Mm-hmm. We we are tied again. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, Craig, here you go. Here's your chance to break the tie and pull out ahead for February seventeenth. Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom welcomed this edition on February 17th, 2017. Oh, you know, it's a year ago. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's I mean, it's as if this was only last year. Uh, Okay, what was February 17th? officially added i believe i was at home for christmas vacation at that point and i made rhino go to it if i'm correct is that when they finally had the grand opening for rivers of light you are correct yeah Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom turned on the lights for its new nighttime show rivers of light so, which I like. I know a lot of people don't. I, I really enjoy it. I like it too. Yeah. So and um, it's beautiful. It's so perfect because it can't be loud and crazy because there's animals, and I like it. I think it's just perfect for that part. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a visual treat. Yeah. Uh, you know, because sort of a visual spectacular. You know, as compared to other shows that are you know, that are more loud or bombastic or things like that. This was just a nice, I don't know, nice mellow sort of um, nighttime spectacular, I think. And, and, but that means Craig has 10, Jackie has seven. So Craig in our two out of three here, you, you are our um, champion. I'll I'll give myself an asterisk on this one though, because (laughs) Jackie had one last question to me. 
Anyway, yeah, because there's seven days. There's seven days in the week, so not much we can do there. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but congratulations and thank you so much for um, playing with us, Jackie. Absolutely. A, of course, you know, of course, you know, we'll, we'll send you home with, you know, a year's supply of turtle wax. Oh, awesome. Woo-hoo. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway. Thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah for, for people my generation you'll remember those were always the consolation prizes or things like that so, or the home versions of the game shows but um but thank you this was a lot of fun and great and well I'm, i hope you'll come back again sometime i would and love join to us. great yeah. well thank you Thank you. And uh, so that that ends our, our This Day in Disney History quiz for this week. So we'll we'll let you know who's going to challenge Craig um, next week. So next week, the United States celebrates President's Day. And in honor of that day and the 44 men who have held the office of President of the United States, Craig and I will take you on a walk through the history of the Magic Kingdom attraction Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World. So, Craig, if our listeners can't wait until next week, where can they connect with you on the Diz Unplugged? I believe they can find me most days of the weeks on all the shows that we put out. Uh, here, there, and everywhere, the Disney World edition, the Universal edition, and uh, the Daily Fix along with this. And then, of course, as always, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Teleclaster, and I'll be funny, complain, all that good stuff. And since we're we're going to Hall of Presidents next week, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll hang out outside the Hall of Presidents and go watch your favorite attraction slash show. Uh, (laughs) Vile little Muppets. But at least then, (laughs) during the one show, right afterwards, they encourage you to go inside the Hall of Presidents, and then it'll it'll all just flow together. But Mm -hmm, I probably won't be doing that. But yeah, you can find me all those (laughs) other places. So what about you, Michael? (laughs) Well, you can send me messages at michaelbowling at wdwinfo.com on Twitter. I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm at Michael Bowling. This is the one with the Connecting with Walt banner, not the other one where I don't post about anything Disney. And Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And as Craig's been telling you, Connecting with Walt is on Twitter at Connecting Walt. And we have been adding more and more um, interesting feeds that have to do with history. And we've been interacting with some of our listeners who have, you know, s- subscribed to Connecting with Connecting Walt. So um, be sure to join us there at Connecting Walt. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And if you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disneyunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.